0: If you're joining us online, we have Chuck Getty who's uh, hosting our, our regular online. I think Lori Fox is hosting our uh, Facebook online. We're just we're great great to have you all with us. Thanks for being here. Uh, Operation Christmas Child. Remember that you saw that as uh, as we earlier in our service, and just want to remind you to be a part of that. Just filling out filling up a box can change a child's life. And filling up 20 boxes can change 20 children's lives. Or you could go the Marvine route. I don't know if she's in here, but her and her team do hundreds of boxes changing lives. So just want to remember that as we move on in our service. We're in a series called In God We Trust. And last week we talked about several things. Uh, the two greatest moral evils is what we really centered on. Uh, The greatest moral evil in our past being slavery, the greatest moral evil that we're confronted with today in our country would be abortion. And so um, the reason that I do that, I know some people might be thinking, well, why are we talking about this or that? Well, because our country, uh, people in our country are saying that our country is racist because of our founding that we're a racist country, and basically it needs to sort of go away and be rebuilt in a different way. And, And I'm here to say, no, our country is not a racist country. That's not to say there isn't racism. There's racism. There's racism and hate anywhere you can find more than two or three human hearts. I mean, that's just the way that is. But I think we need to know our history as Americans. So, that's why last... Last week I was talking about how when our country uh, was founded, even before its founding, just in the colonial days, that racism was already an issue. That was the main sin that plagued our country was slavery, but there were already people battling against slavery at the time during colonies. Our colonies were passing laws in the north to outlaw slavery before we even became a country and we did that in 1773 and 1774, as I said last time, uh, the king then vetoed those laws. That act alone in 1774 caused a lot of Christians in America, especially northern Christians, to think we've got to separate from Britain. It's one of the factors that led into the Revolutionary War. And then there was the war, the Declaration of Independence. You know, Written this way, th- these are not racist. We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. These are not the words of racists. I talked about how just a few years after the Declaration of Independence and then fewer years after the war had ended, that Uh, already uh, slavery was being banned in many parts of the United States. For example, with Ohio, in 1787, just a few years after the end of the Revolutionary War, 1787, Britain, as a result of losing the war, conceded some land to the United States. It doubled our size, called the Northwest Territory. That is what today we would call Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, michigan wisconsin that was all the northwest territory and the ordinance the northwest ordinance said there can be no slavery in the territory and there can be no slavery in any state that comes out of this you know that they developed develop inside this territory that was in 1787 before any country in the world had had banned slavery And then, of course, by 1803, I think, uh, 1803, 1804, all the northern states had banned slavery. That was many years, decades and decades before the Civil War. In 1819, I mentioned that the U.S. Navy, along with Britain, were blockading the coast of Africa to to stop the transatlantic African slave trade. Hey, that was 50 years, 45 years before the Civil War. We were not only banned slavery in half our country, we were working to ban it in other parts of the world. And then it took a, a war, of course, and slavery was finally banned in our country in 1865. But it was not like every, everybody had been fighting that this whole time. It was always an issue, our greatest moral issue. But re- put that into context with the rest of the world, though. Everywhere in the 17th century, There was no place in the world where there wasn't slavery. Um, Europeans enslaved other Europeans. Actually, the word slave comes from white Eastern European Slavic people that were enslaved by Muslims. They were called Slavs, which came to be known as slaves. Africans were enslaving Africans for thousands of years. American Indians were enslaving American Indians for thousands of years. All that was happening, Asians enslaving Asians. That just happened for thousands since the dawn of man. That that had been happening. America was on the leading edge of stopping slavery. Today when people talk about slavery, just to get our history straight, a, a lot of time they're focusing on just one part, of the African slave trade, which is called the transatlantic African slave trade. That means slaves who were purchased, slaves purchased in Africa, and then brought to the New World across the Atlantic. Twelve Over 12 million slaves were brought across the Atlantic. Um, over a million of them died en route, conditions were terrible. And people hear those numbers, and there's some misconceptions. First of all, they assume all those slaves came to North America. Actually, what percentage do you think of those slaves came to what we now would call America or even Canada? 3.6% of those slaves that crossed the Atlantic, only 3.6%, still terrible, but only 36 ended up as slaves in what we now call America or Canada. Three, that's 3.6, though, is 388,000 people. Still bad. But most of the transatlantic slaves went to Brazil or the islands of the Caribbean. That's where not over 90% of them went. Nobody really talks about it. And then the other thing is, that's just the transatlantic slave trade. By far more, there are way more slaves, most of the slaves that came out of Africa did not even come across the Atlantic. They stayed in the old world. For example, just Arab Muslims. Slavery that went into, out of Africa into Muslim countries was way more than all of the transatlantic slavery combined. That was just into Muslim countries. So slavery is evil. It's wrong. And racism is evil and wrong. But I'm just pointing out from a historical perspective that we have people saying America was racist. Well, then America was one of the least racist places in the world. That's what I'm saying. Because they were on the leading edge of ending Slaver. You know, a lot of this stuff is from an organization called Wall Builders, David Barton. You know, we've been, our church has known about this ministry for over 20 years. Actually, Chuck Getty, who's hosting online, he taught a class a few years ago uh, about stuff like this. You know, it's just, it's great stuff. If you want to know more about it, you can go to wallbuilders.com. And they have it all there. Um, we just need to, to keep this right in our minds Slavery was the greatest moral evil for the first half of our country, the beginning of our country, and it ended for our entire country in 1865. Today, the greatest moral evil by far is abortion. That's what we're confronting today. And and, and it's amazing to me because when you say that, people will push back and say, hey, Kevin... Abortion is not the only moral issue. Right. There are other moral issues. What I'm saying is abortion is the most important moral issues. There are plenty of moral issues. For example, just this last week, uh, former Vice President Biden had an interview in Philadelphia. As you know, Pennsylvania is a huge battleground state in the election. He interviewed with the Philadelphia Gay News. You could look this up yourself. And what he was telling them that they just published here this last week, was that he would pass, in the first hundred days of his presidency, he would pass what he called the Equality Act, which would mean that for Christian organizations, whether they be schools or adoption agencies, that they would not be allowed to hire based on sexual preference, which, you know, that is a real problem for Christian organizations and they would be put out of business. What else goes with that is because we encourage adoption. Think about it this way, that if, uh, if a mother had an unwanted child and she decided to deliver, go full term and deliver the baby and give that baby up for adoption, she would, with this law, would not be allowed to go to a Christian agency that would, that would tell them, well, we'll try to place this child with a Christian home. That would be illegal to do that. So there are a lot of issues that are entangled in the election that are, are moral issues, but what we're saying is abortion is the worst because six million babies have been intentionally killed since Roe v. Wade in 1973. Now, Killing babies, it's been around a long time. Not so much abortion, but killing babies. For example, in the Roman Empire, when people had a child and then after the child was born, usually this is because it wasn't a boy, say if it was a girl or for any reason, um, they would just set the baby outside and let it die of exposure, infant side. They would just set it out, and that was commonplace. What changed that was in the 3rd and 4th century was the spread of Christianity, who first Christians started grabbing all those babies because they'd be set outside to kill. Well, if people wanted a baby, they could just grab the baby, but unfortunately, a lot of people were grabbing these babies and doing unspeakable things to them and making them slaves and everything else, and Christians were trying to rescue them, but Rome, influenced by Christianity, changed those laws where that became illegal. Why? Because of Christians, that became illegal way back then. Today, we just kill babies before they're born, and we call that choice. America was one of the leading countries in outlawing slavery but America is not one of the leading countries when it comes to outlawing abortion, but maybe we're beginning to be, we'll see. And I, and I know when I talk about stuff like this, that, that some of you, you're on edge, you know, you're kind of in turmoil and, and, and you're waiting to see the words come out of my mouth, how much they're gonna irritate you. And, and you know, I, I get that, you know, you talk about politics, it, People get irritated. I I totally understand. It's always been that way, by the way. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at a passage today where a political issue comes up with Jesus. And then in in how Jesus interacts, Jesus teaches us how we should interact politically. And that's going to be out of Matthew 22. So I I understand. So, What happened at that point is Jesus is asked... People are politically agitated, it's the last week of Jesus' life, and there are all kinds of political factions. Jewish people had five political factions, two of which were the most hostile to Jesus, representatives of two of these factions come up and they ask Jesus a purely and highly political question. It's a question we've all heard. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then we see Jesus' response, which, which is genius. But as, before we get there, I want to give you the backstory. Okay, you ready for that? Okay, here's the back story. So we're going to go to Luke 22. I'm sorry, Matthew 22. This is recorded in Matthew, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John. Sorry about that. But here's, here's the backstory. story. Rome had occupied Israel. Israel is waiting for the coming Messiah who they believe will deliver them from Rome. Rome, at one point in history when Jesus was eight years old, Rome levies a brand new tax on all the Jewish people that was called a poll tax or a head tax. And that was just a tax on each individual as a, to, to have the privilege of being a subject of Rome. And so the Jewish people, they hated this tax because they didn't like Roman occupation and they had been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years, who they were waiting to deliver them from the Messiah. Now, it's not only that, it's even more intense because if you were a serious Old Testament scholar in the first century, and they had the Old Testament Bible, you would be able to count down by reading the book of Daniel and some other books in the Old Testament, you would be able to count down to the year, to this very year in history, the year that Jesus came in to Jerusalem. And so the expectations of the Messiah are skyrocketing. And politics are playing into this. People are frustrated. People are are splintered. People believe all different things. And when they, by the way, 25 years ago before this, when Jesus was eight, when they levied that tax, there was an armed revolt by Jewish people against Roman authorities, which then Rome crushed them. So Jesus at eight years old would have known about this armed revolt. That's what they would have been talking about for the next several years. Now, 25 years later, in Jerusalem, things are dicey. Everybody's coming together. Everybody's agitated. Everybody's waiting to see what's going to happen. Rome has their eye on Jesus because a few days ago, Jesus had rode into Rome, remember the triumphal entry, on the colt of a donkey. And so he rides in. People are yelling, king. Here comes the king to establish his kingdom. I mean, that's what, and they're laying down palm branches and everything. And he's riding in, again, Oddly, as a king, but he's riding the coal of a donkey where his feet are almost dragging the ground. You know, so just a real different picture. And the Jewish people knew, hey, this is it. This is the time. What's going to happen? And so two of the political factions come to Jesus. They ask him this dicey, political, time bomb, powder keg question to see how he's going to answer. And so that sets it up. Here we are. And uh, we're going to go out of Matthew's account. Matthew was a publican, not a republican. A publican, which meant he was a tax collector. He was sort of on the Roman side of things before he became a follower. And then here's what he says. Verse 15. Matthew 22, 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, different political party, saying, Teacher... We know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? All right, so this political question is asked here. And here's what I want us to see. There's a political question, Jesus gives them a practical answer, and then everybody's left with a personal response. There's a highly political question. Jesus gives gives a practical answer to that question, and then all of us have a personal response to that. So, the political question. It's a gotcha question. It's one of those questions like, have you stopped beating your wife, yes or no? Okay, well, how do you answer that? Yeah, I stopped. Or, yeah, no, I've never done. You know, it's a political, and they're trapping, they're laying a trap for Jesus. They're doing that intentionally. Of course, Jesus sees through that. This is a political time bomb question. They push for an answer. The trap is set. If Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax. The Roman authorities are watching him like a hawk. He's just been proclaimed the Messiah, the King, and entered Jerusalem with everybody shouting and singing. They're watching him. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, Rome, the Roman authorities, will come down on him, crush him and his followers, or that's what they had tried to do, and if Jesus died then, he would have been known as a political revolutionary. On the other hand, if Jesus says yes... Pay the tax. Well, then all of a sudden, all the people that have been listening to the Old Testament prophets and also listening to Jesus for the last three years talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, they would think, yeah, pay the tax. Oh, so all this kingdom of God talk, all that doesn't mean a hill of beans. And here's why. Because when we hear the phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, we think, Oh, that's a spiritual kingdom. But in the first century, that's not how people thought. If they took the Old Testament prophets seriously, they knew that God was going to establish a literal, physical, earthly kingdom in Israel, that that was going to happen and the Messiah was going to sit on the throne and he was going to rule physically from Israel. And so that's the way they heard Kingdom of God. What they weren't seeing is that difference in those pictures that sometimes the prophets were saying, Yeah, he's gonna rule, and sometimes they were saying he comes as a humble servant. And so they weren't getting the whole picture, but that was their expectation. And if he would have said, Yes, pay the tax, then they would have thought, Oh, he's not the Messiah. Either way, Jesus answers, it's gonna be a mess and Jesus knows that people are politically frustrated they're mad the city is full of people it's boiling over it's getting dicey and they're asking him are you leading a revolt to overthrow rome now or not you've just come in to jerusalem as a king are you doing this or not do we pay the poll tax that's what they're asking are we going to rebel like we did 25 years ago, yes or no? And here's the thing, his practical answer. When politicians today are asked hot-button questions, what do they do? They just, they start talking about something that doesn't even have anything to do with the question, right? Right? Hey, we're asking you a question. And, one the, and then they just start talking about what they predetermined they were going to talk about before they came. And they just use the question as their time to say whatever. They, they don't answer. They dodge the question. Jesus does not dodge the question. Jesus gives a practical answer. And his answer, by the way, rejects three common political reactions that Christians make today. His answer rejects three different ways that Christians react politically today. So I want us to see that. And those reactions are these. First of all, political apathy. Jesus rejects political apathy. Jesus also rejects political simplicity. And Jesus also rejects political superiority. How does he do that? Let's check it out. Next, next verse right here, verse 18. But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. Now we all have heard that, we remember that, but here, this statement that he gives, first of all, it rejects political apathy. Hey Jesus, I'm asking you this hot button political question. Jesus could have just said, I'm not gonna answer that. He could have turned and walked away. He could have just ignored the question. He did none of that. He gave an answer. He didn't do political apathy. Some people in Jesus' day did become uh, apathetic politically. For example, the whole movement, the scenes, that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Those guys, they left and they just said, hey, we're shutting all this out. We're going to go out in the desert and do our own thing because we don't want to be involved in any politics. That's what they did. And many think churches should be apathetic like that as well. There's a lot of Christians who think churches should not talk about politics that, that, that we're somehow, we, we need to just stay out of the realm. Even about the moral issues, we just stay out of it and don't mention politics. That's not the way Christians, Bible-believing Christians, people who live like Christians have, have ever been. I, I'm amazed at how many people, even Christians, that when you bring up the issue, the greatest moral issue in our country today, which is abortion, that they will say, hey, there are a lot of other political issues. There are a lot of other political issues that involve moral issues, they'll say. There's a lot of moral issues in politics. Yeah, yeah, there are, and they're right about that. But nothing is like abortion. I actually came this morning with an image that's on this screen right now that I was going to show you. It's an aborted baby at 20 weeks. And I don't even think I can show it to you. You know, there could be kids in here. There could be ladies. You know, there could be just people with weak stomachs. It's horrific. On one hand, I feel like I should show it to shock our consciences. Because this is happening every single day. On the other hand, I feel like, well, there might be kids in the room. And, you know, it would be inappropriate. And I'd have to tell people, hey, hide your, you know, some of you shouldn't see this. I'll describe it to you. There's a a baby's head laying at the top of the picture with one eye open and one eye closed. That's been severed. And then the lower half of the torso and legs severed. There's an arm over here. There's the intestines over there. It's just gruesome. And rather than, if you could just imagine that, and I guarantee what you're imagining is not as bad as what I'm looking at right now. This happens every day in our country. Every single day. Every year, hundreds of thousands of babies are killed intentionally and legally. It's the greatest moral issue of our time. Slate. Slavery used to be our greatest moral issue, and we ended it. We were on the leading edge of ending slavery as a country. Abortion is now, though there's slavery in the world, in other places in the world, and illegally, sometimes even here. But abortion is the greatest moral issue now in our country, and I believe the world. But America is not leading on eliminating abortion it looks like we may be starting to lead on this, but so far, we haven't. And I cannot see how Christian people can be morally apathetic when this type of thing is happening in our country day after day after day after day. In our county, it's happening. In Seneca County, it's it's happening all over the place. And we've become calloused. We don't even want to talk about it. And that's why it's so important for us to elect judges who view the Constitution according to its original intent, which is, by the way, how we view the Bible, incidentally, although the Bible's way more important than our Constitution, with original intent. Because somebody out of whole cloth has made this Right to privacy out of our Constitution, which allows people to abort children. It was wrongly decided in 73, and it's wrongly decided now, and it needs to change. That's just the truth of it. Now, we help women. We protect babies, and we support adoption. That's what we're called to do. But Jesus, Jesus is not only against, he not only rejects political apathy, he also rejects another common way that we deal with politics, and that is political simplicity. They ask Jesus a question about a powder keg issue, and then it's yes or no. But Jesus does not give them a simplistic answer. He doesn't say yes or no, right? Jesus answers an in-depth answer according to biblical truth is what Jesus does. He doesn't give them the yes or no answer, but he also does not dodge the question. He rejects political simplicity and he teaches through the implications of what the answer is. So how do he do that? Famously, he says, give me a denarius. Now, there are several different types of denariuses that were mentioned during the Roman era. But this is Tiberius's reign. So this would have been his denarius. And so during this time in history, Tiberius's image is on the denarius. Look like this. And so there is, and notice Jesus said, whose image and inscription. Because not only is this an image of Tiberius, but the inscription says, Son of God Augustus. So Jesus now is holding up a coin with the image of a man who claims to be God, the Son of God. And then on the back side of the coin is another inscription that says, uh, Pontiff Maxim. And you can read it there, meaning high priest. He's Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, is holding up a coin that has a Caesar's image calling him the Son of God and on the backside saying high priest. And then he's teaching through this, he sees issues as complex. But he teaches through them. There's no political soundbite here from Jesus. He gets to the answer. And when he gets to the answer, he rejects one other thing that Christians hold today, which is political superiority. Political superiority is that you just believe. All the answers are going to come politically. All the answers are going to come from government. That's where we're going to fix this world. Government is going to fix the world. Politics will fix the world. That The world's problems, injustice, hunger, killing the weak, all those problems will, will be fixed politically. But that's not the way the world operates. And typically government makes problems worse sometimes. So his response rejects political superiority. And here's the way he does it. He says, Whose image? Whose image? And they all yell, Caesar's image. And after he does that, he says this classic statement Give to Caesar's what's Caesar's. By implication, because he's talked about the image, give to Caesar what has Caesar's image? Money. Give to God what's God's, or give to God what has God's image on it. By the way, what has God's image on it? We do, every one of us, every baby, every adult, we are made wonderfully in God's image. He says, give to Caesar what Caesar wants, some of what Caesar wants, but not everything that Caesar wants, because Caesar wants your first allegiance. Caesar wants you to see him as number one. Give to government some of what government wants, but do not give to government everything that government wants. That's what he's saying. And ironically, what he's teaching them through this, he's saying, you're asking, you're jazzed up about the kingdom of God. And you're asking me this question about, should you give? It wasn't an expensive day's wage. He's saying, you're asking me, should you pay this tax to Caesar? Should give Caesar this day's wage? But yet you have withheld your hearts from your creator. And that's exactly what we do today. And when Jesus gave that answer, he rejected political apathy. Don't be involved. He rejected political simplicity. Oh, it's just always one way or the other. It's just yes or no. And he rejected political superiority. God's not the final authority he's saying. He's saying government's not the final authority. God is. So what did Jesus do? Jesus engaged politically by teaching biblical truth. He's challenging them on their biblical worldview. He's challenging them on what God has revealed to them. And, and so here's the thing. Here's my question to you. Here's my question to every Christian today. Are you willing to to evaluate your politics through the filter of your Christian faith? Do you understand what I'm saying? By putting God first, if you're doing that, then that means that you are willing to evaluate your politics through biblical truth, biblical worldview, or your Christian faith. Because if you are not willing to do that, then what you'll do is you'll get this all turned around and you will create a non-biblical version of your faith in order to protect your politics. You will create a version of faith that's false in order to fit your politics. And God through this is saying, hey, God is the final authority, not government. Government's legit, it can be here, but God is the final authority. And so we see a political question, a practical answer, and last, a personal response. Now, people in this week that Jesus is there, Jerusalem is buzzing. People are talking. People are agitated, people are mad, people are frustrated, political, people are waiting. What's going on? They're saying this guy's the king. Rome's still, this is supposed to be the year. What's happening? And everything is buzzing. And so they were looking for the response to how they respond to what Jesus just said. And the response, it's something to notice, because we would expect them to be mad, angry, frustrated, or even disappointed uh, but they're not. Look at the last verse. And hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. What's, how do they react? Jesus gives this answer. They see how, what a political powder keg it is. He answers, and they're just like, Jaw drop. They they don't know what, they they don't know how, they go, what do we do do with that? Wow, because Jesus is saying, hey, you're talking about this issue, but the problem is the human heart. You won't give your heart to God. Same problem we have. And Jesus is telling them, hey, politics, government will not fix the human heart but Jesus did. Just a few days after this, two or three days, Jesus walks to a hill outside the gates of Jerusalem and allows His own creation to put Him to death, to torture Him to death in order to pay for all of our sins, because we all have them. that He would pay the right punishment, the correct punishment, the just punishment for our sins. And then He opened up a door. He opened up a way for us to be forgiven by God, restored back to God by simply admitting our personal sins. Not everybody else's. Ours. And putting our trust in Jesus alone as the way to deal with that. He paid for our sins, all of our sins. And and by trusting in Christ with a desire to follow Him, with a desire to live out our Christian faith. And it was really an amazing thing because Jesus starts with His followers. Remember, one's a tax collector, the guy writing this recording this eyewitness testimony. He's a tax collector. There was another guy named Simon who was a follower of Jesus. He's a zealot. He's a rebel. He's saying, kill the Romans. And they left that behind and they came to follow Jesus. And then they started running everything, all their politics and beliefs through the grid, the filter of their Christian faith, of the teaching of Jesus, and it changed their lives, but not just their lives, changed the world. And here's what's gonna happen Tuesday, there's an election in our country, and, and then we're gonna find out who wins at some point, hopefully this week. And when we find out who wins, and I hope it's a landslide, you know, just to avoid all the, all the stuff that could happen. But when we find out, yeah, not an applause, I'm just saying, hey, when we find out, half our country is going to be devastated. It, we just don't know which half. You know, half our country is just going to be, whoa. But no matter which party that you're going for here, on Wednesday morning or Thursday morning or Friday morning, whatever morning that is that we figure it out. Jesus is still God. Jesus still rules. And if you and I, if we follow Him, if we faithfully follow Him, we can change the world one heart at a time. And that's exactly what God wants us to do. Our team's going to come out and lead us in a song, but right now I'd like us to stand and pray uh, before they play a out. Father God in heaven, we, uh, we thank you for our country. Not perfect, but I believe the best country in the world. And Lord, so we thank you for that. And Lord, help us be the country you want us to be. Help us as Christians to love everyone and to show them that love in practical ways. God, help us to be the leader in the world for moral things and not lag behind. And God, most of all, help us to follow you through good times, through bad times, that we would commit to follow you, that we would give this all to you, that we would do our duty as citizens, but then move on to follow you with our life. And Lord, amazingly, you promise to use us, us, sinners like us, to change the world. Lord, thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.